Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. I handed over what documents I had. These were all documents that came out of my search 10 years previous with uh, my colleague, um, and she did manage to find uh, my father. Like two weeks later, I'm driving in the car, just left my office, I'm on the 101, and she says, keep driving if you wanna go meet your father. Your father lives in Thousand Oaks. And so I did. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. This is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane speaks with David Hudson. David Hudson is actually an old high school friend. And uh, I knew he was adopted and posed the question to see if he'd be interested in doing the show. And he was game. And today I learned quite a bit. And what struck me most about this is how incredibly unique all of our families are and that there are so many stories to tell. So I hope you find it as compelling as I do. Okay, hey, I'm here with Dave Hudson. Hey, Dave. Hey, how are you, Jane? I'm good. All right, so um, let's just jump in, Dave. T- tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Sure. Uh, uh, born in L.A., raised abroad in India and Israel as a child in the 60s and early 70s, made our way back uh, to Massachusetts. Um, this is all due to my parents, my adoptive parents. Right, so you're adopted, right? I am. Yeah, and so your parents traveled for work, for school? Correct, do do? Mm-hmm. correct, correct. Uh, both were academians. My father's field of study was uh, religious studies, and my mother's uh, field of study was religious studies, women's studies, and anthropology. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so then you came back to, to the United States when you were a little boy? How old were you? That's correct. I think I was, uh, I want to say, seven years old. Right. And then something happened around then. What, what was it? Well, funny you should ask. Um, the realization that I was not like uh, my family. I am of darker tone than my family. My family consisted of my mother, my father, and my older sister, a year and a half older than I was. She was biologically born within the family. And um, I had, I, I, you know, spending time abroad um, in sunny places, uh, everybody was tanned. And I'm not particularly dark. But the realization of the fact that I was of uh, a different race came about in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm. At the young age of seven. And what was it that happened? Because you did not know that you were adopted until then. I did not. And uh, another young boy had referred to me using the N-word. Wow. Um, and I did not know what that meant. And so I made it home. When I made it home, I 
I asked my parents what that meant. And I think that began the, the process of the discussion around my adoption and the fact that I was not uh, biologically their son. Were you able to understand at that age that you were adopted and presumably wanted, uh, as opposed to not being wanted by your bio family? Right. Um, Well-posed question. So, you know, I don't think it fully registered initially, and there were subsequent conversations um, into 8, 9, and 10, and 11. And I think uh, that's when I was evolved enough to understand that aspect. But I did feel as though I was wanted. I think the, the time at which that sort of felt challenged was had nothing to do with my race and had nothing to do really with the relationship that I had with my parents. But it did become challenged when my parents were in process of divorce. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that happened too. Yeah. 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 Oh, a lot happened. Yeah. How, I mean, you know, yeah. how, how, if I can really get into this because the, the divorce side of it too was also messy. Right. So what happened? How old were you when that happened? Um, I believe that I was uh, 10 or 11 years old. And I believe there's no good age. So yeah. whether it's 2, 10, or 20, it still sucks. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to go into the details, Just, but I guess, you know, um, my mother had an affair with one of my father's students. My father was a professor at Smith College, which is an all-women's college. Uh, this was during the 70s, and uh, the lesbian population in Northampton, where Smith College is, was quite large. In fact, I think per capita, at some point I researched it, it was uh, akin to San Francisco and its gay population. I think that's still true, by the way. Yeah, yeah. and it <laughs> caused quite a stir because, um, you know, there was there was always this undertone of uneasiness between uh, this Western Massachusetts town, which was largely made up of uh, uh, second-generation immigrants from Germany, Poland, and Ireland. Um, it's a farming town, and it also is home to the Five College area, which is inclusive of Smith College, Mount Holyoke, Hampshire College, University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and Amherst College. So I would always refer to it as an oasis, you know, uh, in that area, a highly educated area, and people come from all over the world. And uh, But it was a struggle in the town. And uh, uh, there's all these sort of metaphors associated with it. Um, I remember that my mother moved to the other side of the train tracks um, because on one side of the train tracks existed Smith College and its whole community, and the other side, uh, blue-collar workers from Northampton, locals. Um, and so there was just a lot going on. I was in the midst of puberty. I was one of, um, three dark skinned, uh, kids in my class. Everybody else was white. I, I was embarrassed. You're right. Did you know that your mom had an affair with a woman or did you just know that something was amiss in the house? I, I knew something was wrong. Pretty intuitive. Wow. I'm really going to say this. I uh, found my mother in bed with another woman. And uh, that was the moment at which, um, you know, all the things that I had sort of thought about came to light. And I think all along, um, my mother was in a bit of denial, even 
uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but 20 some odd years later, she still referred to herself as bisexual. And yet she had not had a relationship with a man post that, that initial affair. So, all right. So that happened. You walked in on your mom. What was it like with your dad then? Like, were you, did you feel you wanted to defend him? Did you feel like you were like, mom, just don't do that. Don't, don't let it happen. Take it all back. So as I remember it, my mom wanted my father to understand it and wanted to allow for the relationship to continue. My father, I remember him moving down to the guest room. I remember episodes of staying up at night and sitting on top at the top of the stairs, listening to the two of them argue. Um, I think I was too really too young to really understand what was being said at the same time. I was more perceptive than I thought I probably was. And the thing about it was I was closest to my mom. My father was a complete workaholic and, um, you know, very fond memories of growing up and playing games with my mother, you know, board games, card games, spending a majority of my time with my mother because my father was absent quite a bit. And then what happened when your parents split? Did they fight over you? Did you have to choose? Did you? So, you know, there's, uh, I, I wasn't at any of the court proceedings, but um, I think it was a fairly involved court proceeding, custody battle, as I think that the state took the position of that my mother was unfit. Wow, really? Uh, to be. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this is part of the struggle of the community and the times. You've got to remember this is early 70s to mid 70s. And uh, I think that ultimately my father told the court her sexuality has nothing to do with her ability to be a mother. Wow. So your dad stood up for your mom? In that instance, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was shared custody. And so we would go back, my sister and I, I think it started like every two weeks, two weeks on, two weeks off. Um, I think I lasted about a year and a half. And I remember to this day being in the backseat of the car, outstretched, holding my arms against one door and my legs pushing against the other door and refusing to go into my mother's home. And from that point on, I lived with my father for the rest of his life. You know, apart from when I became adult and, and moved on. Right. So they honored your decision to want to remain with your dad. Yeah. There were there were a number of people. I remember my grandmother, her mother, coming to my father's house and again sitting at the top of the stairs and hearing my father and, you know, argue with my grandmother. Isn't it strange how kids so often, they, they're on the periphery and they, they're hearing things and they're not necessarily understanding it right sometimes they understand it intuitively right they get the feeling of what's happening right they can't do anything about it there's no control that's correct and you just that's correct perched at the top of the stairs hoping it's not going to get worse right right and and you know uh definitely not exposing myself to knowing that i'm there so what happened with you and your mom so my mom and i struggled for years and um you know we would go weeks, months, some on end of not speaking, um, developed a very close relationship with my father. My sister would continue to go back and forth. My sister um, discovered, I think about the age of 14, 15, also that she, she was gay. And I think that was, that was difficult. 
And uh, I remember when I was living with my mother, um, weekends were spent in a community in South Hadley, which housed uh, Mount Holyoke College. Right. Also one of uh, seven sisters. Yeah. Seven sisters. Um, mm-hmm. My relationship with my mother extended to weekends where um, I would go to her uh, softball games, which was an organized lesbian league. Classic. Um, that must I would have been spend great. my weekends. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's trippy. <laughs> 20 lesbian women and myself. Uh-huh. And, you know, the appeal for me was I was a quite an athlete. Organized uh, lesbian. That sounds oh, yeah. a little fierce. So it, it was. Right. Was your mom an athlete as well? She or? was. She was an athlete. Mm-hmm. And did you participate in that? Were you like the ball boy or something? Uh, I Bat can't boy? remember exactly. Uh, oh, come on. I can't remember. Really? No, you didn't no, do no, that? I can't. That would've, that would've been no, classic. I don't think I got to play. But, um, but I was a baseball player, you know, I was the, the guy, those newspaper clippings and all of that little league Babe Ruth. So I was being groomed. Yeah. I don't think I was allowed to play, but I, I liked being around, uh, sports activities and I, you know, um, some of these, uh, players were also, uh, Smith college students and, uh, would babysit for me often. Uh, I remember uh, Kathy and Alexis, uh, who were partners, um, who I just loved. They were cool, and they were athletes. I think one was a geologist, and I I can't, you know, I have distant memories. Uh, Somebody who could really speak to this is my sister. Right. So when you say you really love them, it wasn't like you had a crush on them. You just, just, you just really liked their company and wanted to be around them. No, I actually had a crush on Kathy. Yeah. 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 I yeah. did. Yeah. That happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know, I know in life that I have a tendency to be attracted to strong women. That's like the, you know, like my thing is strong and, and eyes. Mm-hmm. I'm not, the rest of this stuff really doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, just saying. Women love to hear stuff like that. So even if that's well, not true, if you, you just know. use that line, right, <laughs> exactly. they just start falling well, at your feet. Yeah. So yeah, two divorces later and three daughters. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> So as you're growing up, you're an adolescent, you're figuring out who you are, you're adopted, you know your parents loved you, they're even fighting over you. Did the way that you thought about adoption at that time change at all? Or was it still just, I'm in a family that loves me and they're fighting about me? Yeah, I, I, uh, I knew, I was aware of the love um, and, and uh, just, you know, that... Yes, I wasn't. I wasn't preoccupied with uh, anything other than their situation and my situation relative to their situation. I never really thought. I did later on develop a, a desire to meet my mother. Um, Your which, bio mom. Mm-hmm. My bio mom, which I I discussed with my father um, more more than anything to to thank her for not aborting me. Like it, it was that, that point where I had realized, you know, uh, given the time, you know, I was a little bit more evolved. And so we're talking 
mid to latter teen years where I sort of developed the sense of, I would like to, to meet my mother. There was also conversation in my early 20s, uh, recollection in conversation with my mother of the court proceedings in Los Angeles. And um, the, you know, there's the moments uh, I remember in my early teens, my parents sharing with me um, my birth certificate, which has me listed as Caucasian, by the way. And, um, and I'm going to sort of speed forward a bit. And then ultimately, when I moved back to Los Angeles and I was in the entertainment industry, uh, the person who was uh, my boss, she too was adopted. And we both decided to go and look for our biological family. Now, yeah, uh, how, how did you do that? How did well, you so we went to down to City Hall and records because at that time, uh, all of the records existed on microfiche. So that's all that was there. And uh, like you had because, to scroll through like the microfiche, right? Yeah, we, like, we had to do some of that. But what ended up happening, and this, this again was associated with my work, we found the guy who was the keeper of all the microfiche um, and was still alive at the age of 80 something, almost 90. And I remember having a phone conversation with him. Because all of this, you know, the, the, the easiest way to track things is through social security numbers. The hospital that I was born in, presumably in Watts, uh, no longer existed. I also was born uh, in a time period. So I fell in some gray area from a legal standpoint that I couldn't get the information about my, uh, it wasn't public record. It wasn't even private record. And all I, all I was working off was a letter from the adoptive uh, agency worker, her name was, oddly enough, Althea Gibson. I ended up speaking to her as well uh, before she passed. Um, just sort of, you know, and this guy who who was like the king of microfiche, he had all of these uh, files that um, while there were copies of it in the city hall, they were not complete. And he had the complete set, I guess, for the United States. And cut to 20 years later in the introduction of a woman by the name of Pam Slayton, who came in and pitched a television show to me, proceeded to have several people walk in and talk about um, their stories. And at, at a certain point, I think two hours into the pitch, I revealed that I was adopted and Pam Slayton then took my information. Um, and two weeks later, she had found my biological father. Wow, it took her two weeks. took her two weeks to find my father. It took her five years plus to find my mother. And you ended up in touch with them? And that my mother passed. So I moved back to L.A. in 1989. Uh, so I would have been 24 years old. And uh, she died in 99. And uh, this probably, it was probably 95 or 96 when I actually went through this process with my colleague. Uh, and I found, uh, it was easier to find his name and we found what we thought was her name, but it was very hard to really sort of decipher. His name was, and my name associated with my birth certificate was baby boy. I was listed as Caucasian. Presumably it had the, the right birth date. My understanding is that I was born in Watts and I spent a period of time, I'm not exactly sure, uh, in an orphanage post coming out of the hospital. And the name that I found out once I spoke to the guy with the microfiche was 
And it really wasn't until I met my biological father that certain things sort of started clicking. Like what? Well, um, there has sort of had been rumor or suspicion that um, my mother was foreign, that my mother uh, lived in Germany uh, near the Polish border and was Jewish and a survivor of the Holocaust. And the recollection that my father, when I asked him about it, um, was that she did, in fact, have tattoos, uh, numbers on her arm. Um, did your dad know that he had a child that that your mom gave up? No, apparently not. Hmm. It, it depends on who you ask in the family. Um, oh, so the stories vary. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the stories vary. His sister, who, who would be my aunt, um, very protective of him. Um, when I met him, so 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 Pam calls me, right? She comes in, she pitches this show. Um, I want to buy it. My boss doesn't let me buy it. I pick up the phone call because I happen to know the person who's running Oprah's network. I pitch it to her. She buys it on the call. Tell Pam, call such and such person. And they made a deal a week later, and they, they did a show called Search that I think lasted a season, maybe two, but I think it was one season. Pam and I obviously um, befriended each other within that two-hour pitch session. I handed over what documents I had. These were all documents that came out of my search 10 years previous with uh, my colleague. Um, and she did manage to find uh, my father. Like two weeks later, I'm driving in the car just left my office. I'm on the 101. And she says, keep driving. If you want to go meet your father, your father lives in Thousand Oaks. Wow. And so I did. She had called, contacted him. He was open to meeting me. I met right then. Yeah. Right then. Yep. As soon as you found yep. out, drove to his house. He looked at me. I looked at him. You know, it was pretty much undeniable that we look a lot alike. I sat with him and uh, his wife. And uh, she apparently, uh, I found out later, was his fifth marriage. Yeah. Oh, so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, I'm only on two, and I'm not getting married again. Now, that okay, apple's okay. rolled a little bit away from the tree, I would think. <laughs> uh, but what it did, it, it did, you know, for me, I think uh, it was impactful in that I wasn't, you know, I had heard stories, again, through my father and uh, my mother around the adoption proceedings back in 1965-66. My sense was my father had nothing to do with me and that I was, you know, born in secrecy. But somehow I had this sense that my mother cared greatly for me and that it was a decision that was very difficult for her. I don't know where that came from, um, but what's really cool is I'm going to when I get to the part when I actually meet my siblings, my sisters from my mother um, and a, another marriage, that uh, she was, in fact, very keen on understanding who I was and who I was with. So I'll get to that in a second. So I meet my father, and um, I really enjoyed his wife. I didn't enjoy him so much. It was challenging, but I think I had some preconceived notions going into the to the meeting that that probably didn't uh, you know didn't didn't play well. I did discover in that first meeting that I had a brother and a sister. The brother was incarcerated, I think, in prison for life, and that he had cut ties with that brother. 
I don't think he had much of a relationship with, with that that guy. Presumably, he was my half-brother. Yeah, it appeared to me uh, that I don't know if it was a bit of a game, but he, I think my, my sense was that um, my father struggles with the responsibility. You know, things like married five times, kind of like, are you really my son? What do you want? And I'm like, mm, he kind of don't need anything, want anything from you. Just the, the sense that he was sort of almost boasting about the fact that he had cut ties with his son. Um, these were all sort of triggers for me of like, mm, yeah, this is all kind of what I imagined and and why you were never a part of this and so on and so forth. That said, I did continue to try to have a relationship with him and the larger family. I remember going to several get-togethers in which I met what would be cousins. Uh, the remarkable thing is they looked familiar. And, you know, we talked through that and more than likely seen each other in passing Santa Monica Promenade or here or there because they all lived in the L.A. area as well. Right. And how did you feel about having this whole new family? You know, it was good, but it was just a little bit odd because everybody was so incredibly protective about him. And, and huh. um, the, the way this story sort of ends in my relationship with him is that uh, through conversations with my mother, adoptive mother, who I just referred to as my mother, who is an anthropologist, uh, who you know, once once found this information, you know, has completely researched the family dating back to the slave ship, which they arrived on in the States. And the fact that, you know, they all emanate from the Nashville, Tennessee area, that in a conversation with my father's sister, I think I referred to her earlier in the conversation, that Your my aunt, aunt mm -hmm. that my father mm -hmm. said, well, I'm not entirely sure he's mine because my brother slept with her as well. So, wow, yeah, Dave. yeah. Wow. So you're kind of like, you know, hmm, I'm going to swear, kind of like Fuck you, right? It's mm. sort of like, and that's sort of, you know, I guess the responsibility and all of that, married five times, just sort of like flashing, you know, just like, you know, I didn't really want it. The bar is extremely high, remind you. My father, my adoptive father has passed away at this point. And my father, my adoptive father is my best friend, my guru, period. This guy, my adoptive father is the spitting image of Paul Newman. Blonde, blue-eyed, one of four boys from Southern California. Had no business adopting a black kid. In fact, the response that his father said to my mother, later revealed in a conversation with my uncle six days before he died. This is all on my, my, my father's brother, adoptive again. My grandfather, Pop, who I was very fond of, but always knew there was a sense of, you know, the response when my mother called my father's father, my grandfather, said, you're going you're gonna to adopt that nigger boy, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just the, 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 the racism and the culture and the time and so on and so forth. And so lots of things sort of like, you know, if you sort of, you know, my father was one of four boys. He was number two. Three of the four boys 
went um, into armed services, served Korea and Vietnam. My father was a conscientious objector. Uh, my father, uh, and it was a battle. It was a battle that I can remember since the beginning of time, the, just a sense of hostility. He very clearly was my grandmother, Nana's favorite. Um, extremely bright, went to Oberlin, concert pianist. That's what put him through uh, school. Just an amazing guy. Just an amazing guy. So I don't know, I, I just departed from... Have you ever wondered, Dave, what your life would have been like if ah yes your mom had kept yeah you? so I do I do and I think that so let, let me just sort of back up here so I meet my father we'll call him Father we spend time over the course of three or four <laughs> months sorry I and, love that well father. just versus Father Hudson right that's right and, that's right uh, we spend time over the course of uh, I don't know half a year interacting, my introducing at that time, my second wife and their kids, my, my daughter from my first marriage, um, you know, and have dinners occasionally and so on and so forth. And it all stops once he makes that comment to my mother and my mother reveals this to me. And I just, I'm sort of done. Um, all along. Let me just ask you, hang hang on one second. So did you, this sounds like Sounds super hurtful, also very deflating and also demoralizing and almost like you're disenfranchised once and then again. That's right. There's a common theme of abandonment uh, in my life uh, for me. And, um, And I think, you know, it starts with, you know, my mother giving me up and, and having, you know, it was too young, obviously, but that feeling, that sense. And then my mother, who in effect abandons me by having an affair, you know, um, yeah. in, in, and yeah. that changes the structure and the dynamic of the relationship. Of the family. The family. Yeah, and so the family. it's just sort of yeah. that kind of thing. I mean. And then also she let you choose your dad. Perhaps she wanted her to fight a little harder for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I mean, I don't. Again, I, I, I keep it pretty simple with my mother, and, and, and I think all of the things that my intuition was correct, and I learned so much about my mother from her daughters, um, two of which are twins, and look just like me. So she had children. So she had with... children with another man, um, and so this is where the story gets interesting and goes back to answer the question of like. What would life have been like if I had stayed with her? Well, probably statistically not good. She remained in the Watts Compton area. Supposedly, she was fairly legendary and was known as the Honky of Compton, um, a woman who took in a lot of kids and took care of them in um, uh, battered drugs, all sorts of situations that were poor everybody would come to uh her house and uh this i learned through my sisters uh and here's some sort of little interesting anecdotes associated with it my sisters remember her when she would drink too much she would cry and sob and she would mention the name david oh yeah 
Wow. And then my sisters also remember that uh, they moved from L.A. to Santa Barbara for a very short period of time, exactly the same time that my father went from Claremont when they first adopted me to Santa Barbara to teach before we left to go to India. So theory is so was she, she was following, following you. She would, mm-hmm. yeah, just so she could get her sights mm-hmm. on you every yeah, now and then, and make sure that make I sure was you in were good okay. standing and all of that. And uh, yeah, it's pretty trippy. And so when I when I have conversations with my sisters, uh, it's pretty amazing. And uh, I just literally got a, a text from my sister. I we don't talk that frequently, but we do talk, and when. I'm in town. I try to see her, and we're going to try to see each other uh, this time. Yeah, um, uh, Tamara and and Maria. My mother's f- first name was Maria, so it was known initially as Maria. Um, it was also uh, a name that was found uh, Maria, and then ultimately Maria, and that's what took Pam Slayton five six years in order to find my biological mother. And what I do know, um, because also sort of a religious aspect of this, my father was a theologian and my parents, when I was first adopted, they were Quakers. Then I remember going to an Episcopal church once my parents divorced. And then my mother and my father both converted to Judaism. Right. And they did that separately. They did that separately. They didn't do that as mm-hmm. a team. Yeah, they did it yeah, separately. Yeah. My mother kept kosher. And so my upbringing in my teen years, we were always around Jews, always, you know, um, Shabbat uh, dinner, Friday nights, all of that. I, you know, participated in all of that and also then recollected that dating back from the days of Claremont and Santa Barbara, that we had a very close friend of the family, very close to my mother, Irene Eber, who herself was a Holocaust survivor. And so when my mother and I spoke about this aspect of the Holocaust survivor and, and the realization that, um, you know, Holocaust survivors, privacy is paramount and it, it's very typical that um, there's name changing and that there's secrecy and that there's just, this is part of the fabric of, it's a survival mechanism. As my sisters tell me the story that they learned from their mother, yes, she was in a concentration camp. Likely it was Auschwitz. You know, I think historically Auschwitz uh, people had uh, numbers tattooed on their arms. But I I think that there has since been some understanding that it may not have only been Auschwitz. Right. And ha- have you been able to to see a picture of your mom? And oh yeah, when you when you do, how do you how do you feel about it's it? It's cool. It's cool. I mean, I you can't totally. I I can see that. I think my if I were to show you photos, you know, my father has a bit more dominant traits. But then when you look at my sisters who who were of a different father, you cannot. I am literally, my sisters and I look like female and male versions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's undeniable. Mm-hmm. You know, and every time I get together with my sisters, I inquire and I get a little bit more information. And my mother is a very inquisitive person. And She's asked a lot of questions, um, but I remember very distinctively one of the first questions I, I asked was about her Judaism, and, and they confirmed that she was a Jew, but that 
at a certain point, uh, they were being raised Christian by her, and uh, that the story is that she and her sister saw right beside them, both uh, her parents shot in the head and her brother shot in the head by Nazis, and at a young age, five or six years old. And that, uh, you know, just little things like my mother, um, her job in the camp was to peel potatoes. And so she could not even look, smell, or taste potatoes throughout their childhood. She wouldn't have anything to do with potatoes. You know, what's, what's, what's amazing to me about hearing this, Dave, is that it's like you spent the last 25 or 30 years piecing together a puzzle, not unlike the way a writer or a screenwriter builds a story right that you and you happen to be a storyteller that's now your business but i mean i I wonder if that's part of why you're so good at what you do now or why perhaps you ended up doing what you're doing now because you've already been doing it since you were right uh, a kid right right? putting together the pieces of the puzzle Uh, i think adopted children uh, depending upon what age they're adopted but in my case being adopted at such a young age um, there was a very cool fantasy surrounding who, you know, right, who, right, who right. might be my parent, Hank Aaron, you know, yeah. take your pick, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, yeah. um, uh, I, I sort of lived in this fantasy world. Um, I was safe because I know I was loved by my parents. So I could kind of just, you know, um, you know, in my head roam. And, um, and then always wondering about, you know, nature versus nurture, you know, and going through life where nothing was nature. It was my own choice to understand or think of that. What was nature? Everything that was relevant or that was happening was, was nurture. Um, there was no basis for nature. And then you get into later on in your life when you meet half siblings, you know, and sit down and have a meal for the first time and, you know, fighting over the hot sauce or whatever, you know, I like that taste. Yeah. I like that taste too. You know, it's like the, you know, so on and so forth, just little things that you pick up. Um, even though they're, they're half siblings, um, it's noticeable. Hey, so how do you have had as your, as your relationship with your bio dad improved at all? No, it, it doesn't exist anymore. I have no relationship with that side of the family at all. I have a relationship wow. with my uh, two out of my three sisters, the twin sisters. On the mom's, on the mom's side, side right. my mm-hmm. One of my sisters um, who I, you know, there's a sense of a little bit closer relationship with one more than the other. And she had a son at the age of 13. And so I have a nephew um, who's just awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just mm-hmm. had his second baby two weeks ago. And I was at his wedding as well as my younger kids went to his wedding. And, of course, looks just like me, you know. Right. So you've been married twice yeah. now, and you have a slew of kids. How I many have three kids daughters. Got? 28. Three daughters. What? What? Yeah, first what? marriage, 28. <laughs> so you were 12, too, when no. that happened? Wow. I was 29. Wow, okay. 29. My first wife and was you have 10 a years my senior. Too? My second wife was mm-hmm. 14 years my junior. And so with okay, my second wife, I had um, two daughters 
So have you thought about yourself about adopting? Oh, for kids? sure. Oh, oh yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I love kids. And they call me in my family. They call me the baby whisperer. The baby mm-hmm. whisperer. That's yeah, a, I'm yeah, particularly that's, that's good. That's a big deal. Um, and I think most of it has to do with the gray beard. Yeah, I don't know. Right. So you're like a really young, a really young, cozy granddad. Yeah, I think is so. I think that you know, for babies, yeah. they can't see much. So this is the facial hair, and I smile a lot, and the bigger lips, and the, you know, there's just all of that stuff works for them. But I just love babies mm-hmm. because, you know, <laughs> babies aren't racist. You know, <laughs> no. I don't have to work hard no. <laughs> for somebody to love me when they're a baby. You know, uh, they just give me an outpouring of love that I just, I'm completely, I'm accepted, right? It's right. easy. It's a very easy relationship. So why haven't you adopted then? Because it just hasn't, the timing not good or? I think it's economics. Don't do it on you. Uh, and, yeah. You know, I've got three daughters, yeah. and quite frankly, uh, while this isn't, this doesn't speak to adoption. You know, one, I'm just increasingly uh, concerned about more children coming into this shitty world we're living in. You know, I'm I am just in great fear of what what life will be like for my 11 and 14 year old. Never mind my 28 right. year old, um, right. and the yeah. path that we're taking. Now that said. Um, I absolutely love, would love to adopt a child, um, but that would require, I, I, it's not something I want to do on my right, own. Right. It's hard to do it on your own. Yeah. Right. And I'm currently involved in a relationship. Um, she's amazing, but uh, I don't know. At my age, um, I mean, I take people in. I don't know if they necessarily, I have to adopt them, um, hmm. you know. So I want to ask you something that I ask all my guests, mm-hmm. and if you can dig deep for sure this. Thing. What is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Mm. And I'm, I'm going to give you an example. You don't have to. I got an answer for you right away. Okay. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this. Didn't masturbate till I was at the age of 21. Why not? Don't know. It's just, what, was it something you did not want to do or you just said, or just kind of had drawn girlfriends like, you, you know, <gasps> Oh, wait a minute. You mean you didn't have to, I didn't, to. Have, to, you didn't I guess. have to, and I didn't, I just don't, I don't. Yeah. It wasn't okay, like Dave, you, you just were, put that out in the world, in the world. You put that I out know. there well, in the world. We're going to, I'm going to get, you know, I'm not signing anything. Go like, we're going to have to beep some of these things because they're, you know, Oh, no, no. We no, no, no. They're names. We've got to beep names because I can't. Oh, I don't mind sharing with the world that I didn't masturbate till I was 21. That's not yeah, an issue. I think that's it's important. more It's more about some of the, you know, my daughter's names and this and that. My mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, yeah I got to. Yeah, we, we, can, we can bleep yeah, we, it or something that. like that. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that and, uh, you know, whatever. Now, that said, once I found that spot, you know. Life was good, you know, and it's, you know, it's the go-to in between relationships. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, I do, I, do, um, I do notice that, you know, it's like when I'm in a relationship, I just, you know. I know this isn't that kind of show, but. <laughs> exactly. it, but I've never shared that with anybody. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you want to no, share? No, 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 no. You've no. been holding on to that. <clears throat> no. 
I want to ask you one other thing mm-hmm. too. I just want to go back to yeah. you said that the idea of being abandoned has been kind of a theme for you. Yeah. Now, I, you're not alone in this. I, yes. I come from a family of 10 children and mm. I, I, I had very absent parents and I felt abandoned too, but I had nine brothers and sisters that mm. were constantly in my world. So I, do you think that's ever going to go away for you? Is it just that thing that is on your ear? Always? No, I think my relationships with, I think on the one hand, I'm, you know, a champion of girl power. There's a reason why I have three daughters. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, and uh, there's a reason why, um, you know, literally in a very large family, there's me and my brother from my father's second marriage. The rest are women. So, you know, that's the world I live in. So in terms of abandonment and my relationships, again, going back, this kind of goes full circle, is that I like, you know, I'm attracted to strong women. Um, but I, I, as my current girlfriend will tell you, uh, I am challenged when I feel like I don't have their full attention or that I see a stray eye or <gasps> really, yeah, there was an incident, uh, with this that was really challenging with, uh, this girlfriend. We went out with friends and, uh, um, my best friend and his now wife, uh, She's bisexual very clearly, and she hit on my girlfriend, and that was okay. But as the night continued on and everybody drank more, and we ended up in a gay bar, and uh, my girlfriend danced very... Closely? Yeah, closely, intimately, with another stranger who was a lesbian. Um, I walked out. Yeah, you know, As they motioned you. to come over and walk, I just I lost my shit. And uh, it was a battle royale and sent her home. And, and uh, it's just, again, a trigger. Right. Because for me, it's, it's not even, you know, it doesn't matter male or female, right? It's this whole issue of, you know, I mean, I'm a monogamous guy, despite what everybody thinks. I know I'm a flirt, but uh, when you got me, you got me. Right. But I'm not, in a, you know, so I'm equally as challenged within my relationships Potentially, if 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 a woman, you know, some guys would say, "Oh, that's sexy," and so on and so forth, and they motioned over, you motioned you over to come with me, and I'm like, oh, "Okay, maybe," you know, it's like not my thing, not yeah. my thing, because I'm like staring at my mother, or I'm, you know, I'm not. It's challenging. Um, wow. wow. Yeah, and I think it's probably even harder for me with uh, a female, right? Um, yeah, for sure. I feel for more sure. challenged with, you know. Yeah, like, because you're opening that door again. Yeah, like and, I can, you know. Yeah, but you know, it's really funny about how people, you know, even if you're open-minded, even if you're not possessive, even if you're very secure, we want to have things for ourselves. And I can see how you would want your relationship for yourself and not share it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that can go back, you know, to to early childhood or it could just be you don't want to share um yeah although i think you know people will tell you i'm one of the most generous people you've ever met and i am i know i'm generous right but we're talking about something else we're talking exactly about, yeah, yeah yeah i'm just i'm just referring to kind of surface shit and like right. i'll i'll spend my last time you know um you know i just recently had a birthday uh and this woman who i had been dating uh took it upon herself to 
contact all members of my family, both adoptive and biological, and put together a video and the realization of how loved I am and how amazing it was, was just, you know, like if I wasn't so anti-marriage institution, done. She would well, be like- Well, that's sweet. Yeah, That's a yeah. sweet thing to do. Yeah, and she, it was amazing. It really, really is amazing. And And the reality is, Probably my guess is I wouldn't be alive if I grew up in Compton. That's what you said earlier. Yep. You wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't be alive. Chances are pretty good that I would not, especially knowing what my sisters went through. So your mom saved you and she gave you a new life. She gave you away and she gave you a new life. That's right. And for that, I'm forever indebted and think fondly of her. And then, yeah. you know, that was that was an exclamation point added to that when I met my biological sisters and heard stories like, we remember this, we remember that, and how painful, and what a wonderful person she was. Um, I'm you sorry know. you never had a chance to meet her. Uh, me babe. too. Yeah, me I bet too. that. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that hurts a lot. because it it's, really... it's, it's just sad. Yeah. I, you know. Especially because you wanted, tried so hard to find her. Well, yeah, but then just to hug her and say thank you, thank and you, I'm all, and I'm doing okay. In fact, I'm doing great. I just want to thank you, Dave. Yeah, thank, thank you, Jane. You. You're like super forthcoming, and how this all twists and turns and pieces of the puzzle that yeah, you're still putting together. I'm still putting together. Well, thank you, Dave. Yeah, really, thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David, for taking the time to share your story with us. I gotta say, man, <laughs> there's some pretty rich stuff in there. So, thank you. And next week, we're gonna hear from Zaid Gale, Peace for Kids co-founder and executive director. Peace for Kids is a grassroots nonprofit organization that has served thousands of current and former foster youth in South Los Angeles. So needless to say, I'm sure Zaid will be a great resource and have a lot of stories to tell. See you next week and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.